So for the next four weeks, as we wait together, as we worship together, as we contemplate this season of Advent together, we'll be doing that in part through this sermon series called Adventageous. Yes, that's play on on words there, and um, we may or may not have the spelling correct, I'm told. Uh, But um, the idea around this series is that we, at one point or another, we're all requesting, maybe even begging uh, and hoping that God would intervene in our lives with the problems and the struggles that we have. And there's even a saying, you know, that there's a couple sayings around uh, the timing of God, you know, that, that maybe God doesn't come when you want him to, but he's always on time. But a lot of times what we see in the scriptures is a God who uh, oftentimes seems late or shows up at really inconvenient times or sometimes doesn't seem to show up at all. So the line, how long, O Lord, is, is a common type of refrain and cry in the scriptures. So basically, oftentimes, what we want from God and how we want God to show up in our lives is not advantageous to us. It doesn't seem to advance our causes or our concerns in the way that we would hope. At least that's what the scriptures are a story of. So what what does it look like then to begin again afresh anew this year to reimagine what it looks like to wait on in wonder and expectation, God. That's what we'll be discussing over the next four weeks. And uh, we're starting this morning with this passage in Isaiah. And I've titled this sermon, The Shape of God. The Shape of God. So uh, many of us have probably uttered this phrase. Probably most people in the world have said things like this uh, to God or prayed this uh, to God that, Lord, will you please uh, help my enemies to get what's coming to them? Or we've thought it. We've thought, like, I hope, I hope these people doing wrong, that they get what's coming to them. They're denying this truth or this reality or they've treated me or others poorly. And, and would you make sure they get what they deserve? Or we've asked God, why do you allow this to happen? Why do you allow evil uh, to persist? Or why do you allow this pandemic to take someone that I love? Or for a certain um, politician to have their way? Or uh, for a war to continue on and on and on? This is so unfair. And, of course, eventually those prayers get around to us personally as well. Like, this is so unfair to me. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Will you fix this, God? Will you come down and do something about this situation that's so unjust? This is incredibly human to to make these kinds of prayers and requests and pleas because we live in a, in a volatile world. We live in a world where evil is rampant, where wrong is perpetuated every day, where 
People die unjust deaths where children die of hunger every single day. We're right now in a food shortage because so many people have lost their jobs and, and don't have income. Bad things happen to good people. Uh, the planet is vulnerable, and, and many of us are in vulnerable positions. So we cry out, we cry out, why? Why, God, will you fix this? But then oftentimes, nothing seems to happen. All we get in return is a, a deafening silence. And so we move on. We comfort ourselves with social media, gorge ourselves on movies and food. Maybe we have an unchecked addiction or two that we let ourselves just fall into and don't even bother asking for help because it's too scary, it's too vulnerable, and it numbs us. And we wait until the next time where we get desperate to ask God to come down, to intervene. Or maybe you've already stopped asking that question. So, in this Advent season, we're going to ask this question, especially this morning, what does it mean to wait on a God that almost never seems to meet our expectations? Because if we cry out, we ask for things, and, and we don't get those answers, that means... Our expectations are different for what God's going to do or wants to do or is willing to do in the ways that we imagine that God would than how God actually operates. It doesn't necessarily mean that that silence is divine silence. It just means that we might have a different set of expectations than what God does about how God works. So, if God never fits this shape from the cries, from the pleas that we have, that all of us have, then how can we begin to imagine divinity differently, to, to, to hold and re-examine the spaces that make up what God is like and what God will do? And this isn't, uh, this isn't something new. It's not something that I invented or, or thought up or or that a, a new pop philosopher is suggesting we do, this is the goal of Scripture. Scripture is constantly looking to reassess how we've imagined God to be and how God might be acting in the world right now. And oftentimes it's surprising. It's surprising to the very writers of the Scriptures. And so it seems good that we should enter into the same struggle and wrestling together. So let's, let's get to this scripture. Let's look at it. Let's look at the first uh, couple of verses here, because it, it seems that, that it's not God that's changing in these scriptures, but it is the way that we experience the divine that's changing, and we're just trying to keep up. So verse 1, the writer says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. This is a, 
a graphic and energetic depiction of a powerful and forceful God. And this is what the, what the Israelites and the writer Isaiah was hoping for and looking for because the Israelites were being pressed against by mighty armies, by the Assyrians, who were the, some of the most vicious um, armies. They had the most vicious armies in, in the ancient world. And then the Babylonians after that. And, and the Israelites were being attacked. And they were, they were weak politically and spiritually on the inside. Their, their infrastructure of their morality and their dependence on God and uh, their military might was weak. And, and they wanted God to intervene. And you can see that in this prayer of, of the way that the writer is imagining that God would intervene in this situation, that he would rend the heavens, like rip open time and space and come down like, like a fire that causes water to instantly boil. That is a powerful image of God. It, it's, it's direct intervention. It's save us. And it's not just save me from my problems, but it's smite my enemies, destroy those who are against me. The writer has a clear understanding that he is on the Lord's side, that God is for him. And this is so common to the human experience, to see those who are against us. And this is an important part of the spiritual journey of thinking about God as being for us and, and being willing to fight for us when things are unjust and when things are mounting up against us and evil is at the doorstep. And I say all that, but it's also, it's also not where we, and at least the scriptures, finish when they imagine what God is like. It's an important first step to believe that God is on your side, that God is with you, that God could intervene in those powerful and drastic ways. But that's not the end of a spiritual journey, at least not in the scriptures when we're imagining the shape of God. As, as the writer continues here, he's, he's talking about and remembering and imagining the ways that, that God continues to intervene and has intervened. So when we keep reading, it says, uh, when you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who works for those who wait on him or wait for him. Um, in, the, in the Advent lectionary readings, there is a, a, a passage that has some similar type of powerful language, apocalyptic-like language in the book of Mark chapter 13. I want to read a few verses to that from that uh, to you as well. It says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels 
and gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. In, in both of these passages, we see that the writers are showing us things that we did not expect. In fact, uh, Isaiah says exactly that. He said, when you did awesome deeds that we did not expect. And then he goes down and he talks about the mountains quaking. And the writer of Mark is talking about stars falling from the sky, darkness, all of these types of things. And, and, and the key here is these are things that we would not imagine, that we would not look for on an ordinary day or as an ordinary answers to our prayers. And I think largely these things are metaphors of what it's like when God does show up, when God does enter into our world and our life that it's not expected. You know, when we think about two of those major events in the Bible, we think about the Exodus, where God intervened and freed the people of Israel in a dramatic, miraculous way. And this was a very direct interaction in all of the Hebrew scriptures. After that, they look back to that event to remember the way God intervened in their lives. But they also are pleading and crying out, why aren't you doing that now? And, and for us as Christians, the next event that Advent is, is even centered around is the incarnation of Jesus, of God made manifest in human form. And, and, and this was unexpected, not that a Messiah would show up. All of the Jewish people were expecting that the Messiah would show up, but he wasn't rending the heavens he wasn't ripping open and burning things up and destroying and smiting the enemies. He came in ten tiny little fingers and ten tiny little toes, born to a, a, a woman out of wedlock, a, a teenage woman out of wedlock, most, most likely, in a little barn in a tiny little town. He had no power. This is unexpected. And if there's, if there's any event in all of the scriptures, in all of what I understand history to be, that is unexpected about the difference between my own prayers of God's intervention in my world and in my life, it would be God entering human existence in that way. And so we take time to meditate on that. It was not advantageous that Jesus came the way he did. It seems awfully inconvenient for the overall story that we see in Scripture for God to come that way. He had no iron rod. He was not smiting enemies. He was not wiping out all that was evil. And believe me, I have wanted that. I have prayed for that. I have myself actually, like, organized a stakeout to catch a child molester, okay? Like, I am, uh, we did catch the guy, by the way, just a side note. I know, just, I know I throw out these random stories sometimes, and you never get the whole thing, but, um, so, I, you know, I, 
I have prayed these prayers, and I'll pray them again, most likely. And so the, the unexpectedness of the incarnation, it in some way seems to conflict with this picture Isaiah is painting. The mountains. The mountains quaked. And when I think about that, I think about the mountain of my assumptions quaking. You know, I've had my own moments of divine revelation. I've found myself at 21 with an unexpected desire to change behaviors that I thought I couldn't change, didn't want to change. And then the mountains of my expectations quaked. I found my perspective of reality moved and shaken again and again by this God that seems to constantly be available to reveal more to me when it's I that am willing to see it. And it doesn't answer those cries and those pleas, and yet, and yet here it is, the divine again in front of me, as unexpected as a tiny baby. And then, then in these scriptures in Isaiah, it's really interesting because he says, he says, after talking about how unexpected it is in verse 3, in the mountains trembling, he says, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you. Beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And at different points in my life, I would have, I would have, lit, I would have heard those verses and I would have said, yes, yes, only this God, only the God of the Bible, the God of my understanding is what has appeared. And so I need to go around and convince people of my exact view of who God is. But I don't read it like that anymore. The way, the way I read it right now and what, the way I see that, what it means to me is when I see that uh, no eye, no ear has perceived any God besides you, it makes me realize it makes me understand that the truth of God is just truth. That if you have experienced the divine, then you've experienced it from one source. And that's God. And so what that does is that frees me up. That frees me up. I've heard it said, I've heard it said before, you know, um, that, that some, some people, this is the, and this might sound scary, I know, that some people are like, well, is that God's truth? Is this thing you're talking about, this idea, God's truth? And uh, this theologian would respond and say, well, um, what's true is true, is true, is true, is true. And so when I think about this God that shows up unexpectedly in reality, uh, it would make sense to me that the writer um, has, has this inspired understanding here to say that no eye has seen any God besides you. And, and that that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. There's, there's, that, there's that advent, that, that expectant waiting, this, 
this, uh, this, this man is riding in these most trying of circumstances, and he still has the clarity, the inspiration to say, we must wait on God. Man, to be present like that in such trying circumstances is amazing. So, um, this, these, sto- these stories and these ideas from the scriptures, it reminded me of a story that I read uh, when I was in college, actually, in like an intro to, to lit class. And um, I'm one of those people who've kept a lot of my textbooks from college. I know, it's so lame, whatever. Take up a lot of room, too. I mean, that, those lit books are like thousands of pages. So I dusted that thing off this week. And I found this story uh, is written by a, a Jewish guy named Bernard Malamud. And he was the son of a Russian Jewish uh, immigrant or immigrants. And he wrote this story about the unexpected presence of, of the divine. And as I was thinking about these scriptures, this story popped into my mind. And it's called the uh, story of Angel Levine. I think it's just called Angel Levine. And I want to tell you a little bit about this story because I think it kind of, it kind of brings this idea home and makes it a little bit more tangible for us. Um, so the, the main character is a man named uh, Manishevitz, and he's a tailor. And at the beginning of the story, you find out he's lost everything. Uh, he, you know, he had his own business working as a, a tailor, and it burned to the ground from a, uh, some kind of chemical fire in, the, in a wastebasket. And he had insurance, but a couple of his clients, repeat clients, sued him for damages. And so uh, all, all his insurance money and all his savings uh, were, were taken in that. He had two children. He had a very promising son that died in the war in World War II and a daughter who ran off with some, you know, jerk and had not been heard of in a long time. On top of that, he had increasingly challenging back pains to the point where uh, the only thing he could do was, was iron as a job afterwards, and he could only hold that up for two hours at a time because his back hurt constantly. And not only that, but his wife took ill, who he loved so much. The one person he had left in his family, she took ill and was bedridden. And so here this man's lost everything. And he's trying to work. His wife is dying in bed. And he's in excruciating physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. And he's an extremely religious Jewish man. And he goes to the synagogue. He cries out to God. He wonders... Is he being punished for something? What's going on? Please help me. And then somebody shows up in his living room or his, his, uh, at his dining room table. And um, it's this shabbily dressed, tall, slender black man with a scuffed up, dirty kind of suit, frayed edges on the sleeves. And he's got a little, little hat on. Um, and he's just sitting there at his dining room table reading, reading his, his paper that he had been reading that uh, uh, 
Manivashets was was reading before. And he thinks at first like he's a social worker or something that's come because he'd applied for welfare and benefits and stuff. And and then he realizes, no, this guy's not, he's just sitting there. He doesn't have a notepad. He's not, you know, looking over the place. He's just kind of sitting there reading the paper. And so he sits down and he starts trying to talk to the guy and the guy tells him uh, that he's an angel. And, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, our, our, our main character, this uh, white Jew, is like, what, you're an angel? I mean, you don't look like an angel. Where's your wings? Like, what's going on? And uh, I'm going to read part of their conversation to you. Uh, let's see. Amana Shvets. <laughs> I'm going to say that probably different every time I say his name. He says, uh, if you are an angel, he demanded somewhat angrily, give me the proof. Levine wet his lips. Frankly, I cannot perform either miracles or near miracles due to the fact that I'm in a condition of probation. How long that will persist or even consist depends on the outcome. Manischewitz racked his brain for some means of causing Levine positively to reveal his true identity. When the Negro spoke again, it was given me to understand that both you and your wife require assistance of a salubrious nature. The tailor could not rid himself of the feeling that he was the butt of a jokester. Is this what a Jewish angel looks like? He asked himself. This I am not convinced. He asked a last question. So if God sends to me an angel, why a black? Why not a white? That there are so many of them. It was my turn to go next, Levine explained. So there's, there's a lot of humor to this story, this Job-like character here encountering this guy. And he finds out earlier, I didn't read this part, but he finds out earlier that uh, the man was a Jew in his former life. And, and now he's this angel, but he's like, he's a new angel. So he's kind of like on probation. He doesn't get all the full rights of, of being an angel. So he can't perform miracles and that kind of thing. Um, and and uh, Manishevitz has him, he's like, if you're a Jew, then, then say the Jewish prayer for, for bread. And he does. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm still not convinced of, of all this, but uh, you, you seem like you're probably a Jew. Um, and uh, so they have this, this funny thing, and Levine finally says, he's like, look, I got to go, but if you want help, you can find me in Harlem. If you decide you believe me, you want some help, you can find me in Harlem. So the rest of the short story uh, is uh, Manivishvitz going and to Harlem. He makes two trips to Harlem. First time he kind of chickens out and comes back. Second time he finally uh, finds uh, Levine. And he's so desperate. He's like, man, I really don't think this is, this is it. And this guy is for real. But I'm so desperate, I don't have any other option. He's hobbling with his cane. He finds this guy. He, he stumbles upon this black Jewish synagogue where these four people are having discussions about um, uh, uh, the, sp- the color of spirit. And uh, so he finds this guy in like a, like a, um, a dance, like party jazz bar kind of thing. And he comes up to the guy, the guy, uh, Levine, looks like he's been drinking. The black angel looks like he's been drinking. And uh, so Manishevets comes up to him, and uh, he says, kindly state the purpose 
of your communication with yours truly. The tailor wet cracked lips. You are Jewish, this I am sure. Levine rose, nostrils flaring. Anything else you got to say? There's a little bit of back and forth and exchange within Manishevetz's mind, and there's deafening silence in the place. Finally, it says, with tears blinding the tailor's eyes, he says, was ever man so tried? Should he say he believed a half-drunk Negro was an angel? And there's still silence in the room, and he's remembering these things in his mind about belief, and he, he even sees this little like, like game board piece going back and forth between, yes, I believe, no, I don't believe, and these kind of things. And then he finally says out loud, I believe you are an angel from God. Everything changes in that moment. They leave. Um, they, they go back to, to Manivishvet's uh, apartment. But uh, the angel Levine, he, he, he goes up to the roof. He's like, don't worry, everything's done. You could go in your house. Your wife will be fine, that kind of thing. And... Uh, And, and she is. Um, and the amazing, the amazing thing, uh, when Manivashvets comes back into his apartment, his wife is up and she's like cleaning and stuff. He doesn't say anything about her being well, and we don't hear any dialogue from her, but he, he says, Fanny, her name's Fanny. He goes, it's the most amazing thing. There are Jews everywhere. That's the last line of the book, of the, of the short story. I don't know if you have any idea why I read those, those pieces of that story to you, um, if, you if your mind's already turning and churning with things. Um, but this passage in Scripture, it's talking about the, uh, this unexpected shape of God, this earth-shaking, world-splitting star and sky falling revelation of who God is. And uh, there's, there's lots of people that look at these passages in the Bible in our, in our modern era without the lens and the understanding of how Scripture has been looked at for most of history. And they look and they try to like turn this into a, a scientific occurrence. And so they start looking for signs and they fixate their anxiety of the world's problems on external things, looking for literal signs predicting the end of the world coming. But when I think about how Jesus came, the, the ways the prophets cried out and predicted that Jesus was coming the actual way that he came, it seems, it seems that often, I'm not saying all the time, but it seems often in Scripture that, that God is shaking the mountains of our assumptions and expectations when the divine enters into our world. That, that the shaking up is happening inside. That, that as scary as it is, that our faith, it offers some stability. But some of us have been taught that that's all it offers. And sometimes at least in the faith of the scriptures, 
it requires our faces metaphorically melting off, the mountains being shaken, because God appears in a way we could have never expected. In the thing we're praying against, in the, in the relationship that we are um, at a loss with, and that we are ready to end with a family member or a spouse or a child or a friend in a problem that we've been pushing so hard against. And yet, whether it be a a pandemic, a sickness, an unemployment, that the security for me right now comes from believing that God works in very unexpected ways. And that while my prayers might not meet those expectations, I can still, I can still cultivate a wondering, a desiring to be able to see the shape of God where it might appear. And so uh, with that, I'd, I'd like us to go ahead and pray together and get ready for one of these beautiful shapes that we can see in, in the table in communion. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this season of, some, of Advent and for the scriptures, for our experiences, for the things and the ways that you show up and will show up. And I pray that we can find some comfort in it. I pray that we can find uh, some challenge uh, to our faith. I pray that we can find some encouragement and strength. So as we come to the table, I pray here that you would prepare us for an unexpected meeting with you. In Jesus' name, amen.